Section 44 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 44. Louis XIV, His Wars and His Conquests, 1661-1697, to Part 1. Cardinal Mazarin, on his deathbed, had given the young king this advice, quote, Manage your affairs yourself, sir, and raise no more premier ministers to where your bounties have placed me. I have discovered, by what I might have done against your service, how dangerous it is for a king to put his servants in such a position. Mazarin knew thoroughly the king whose birth he had seen. Quote, he has in him the making of four kings and one honest man, he used to say. Scarcely was the minister dead when Louis the Fourteenth sent to summon his council. Chancellor Seguier, Superintendent Fouquet, and Secretaries of State Le Tellier, De Lyon, Brienne, Duplessis-Guenguot, and La Vrillière. Then, addressing the Chancellor, quote, Sir, said he, I have had you assembled together with my ministers and my Secretaries of State, to tell you that until now I have been well pleased to leave my affairs to be governed by the late Cardinal. It is time that I should govern them myself. You will aid me with your counsels when I ask for them. Beyond the general business of the seal, in which I do not intend to make any alteration, I beg and command you, Mr. Chancellor, to put the seal of authority to nothing without my orders, and without having spoken to me thereof, unless a Secretary of State shall bring them to you on my behalf. And for you, gentlemen, addressing the Secretaries of State, I warn you not to sign anything, even a safety warrant or passport, without my command, to report every day to me personally, and to favour nobody in your monthly rolls. Mr. Superintendent, I have explained to you my intentions. I beg that you will employ the services of M. Colbert, whom the late Cardinal recommended to me. The King's counsellors were men of experience, and they all recognized the master's tone. From timidity or respect, Louis the Fourteenth had tolerated the yoke of Mazarin, not, however, without impatience and in expectation of his own turn. Portrait de la Cour, Archive Curieuse, page 371. Quote, the cardinal, said he one day, does just as he pleases, and I put up with it because of the good service he has rendered me, but I shall be master in my turn. And he added, the king, my grandfather, did great things, and left some to do. If God gives me grace to live twenty years longer, perhaps I may do as much or more. God was to grant Louis the Fourteenth more time and power than he asked for, but it was Henry the Fourth's good fortune to maintain his greatness at the sword's point without ever having leisure to become intoxicated with it. Absolute power is in its nature so unwholesome and dangerous that the strongest mind cannot always withstand it. It was Louis the Fourteenth's misfortune to be king for seventy-two years, and to reign fifty-six as sovereign master. Quote, Many people made up their minds, says the king in his memoir, page 392, that my assiduity in work was but a heat which would soon cool but time showed them what to think of it, for they saw me constantly going on in the same way, wishing to be informed of all that took place, listening to the prayers and complaints of my meanest subjects, knowing the number of my troops and the condition of my fortresses, treating directly with foreign ministers, receiving dispatches, making in person part of the replies, and giving my secretaries the substance of the others, regulating the receipts and expenditures of my kingdom, having reports made to myself in person by those who were in important offices, keeping my affairs secret, 
distributing graces according to my own choice, reserving to myself alone all my authority, and confining those who served me to a modest position very far from the elevation of premier ministers. The young king from the first regulated his life and his time. Quote, I laid it down as a law to myself, he says in his Instruction au Dauphin, to work regularly twice a day. I cannot tell you what fruit I reaped immediately after this resolution. I felt myself rising, as it were, both in mind and courage. I found myself quite another being. I discovered in myself what I had no idea of, and I joyfully reproached myself for having been so long ignorant of it. Then it dawned upon me that I was king, and was born to be. A taste for order and regularity was natural to Louis the Fourteenth, and he soon made it apparent in his councils. Quote, under Cardinal Mazarin there was literally nothing but disorder and confusion. He had the council held whilst he was being shaved and dressed, without ever giving anybody a seat, not even the Chancellor or Marshal Villeroy, and he was often chattering with his linnet and his monkey all the time he was being talked to about business. After Mazarin's death the King's council assumed a more decent form. The King alone was seated, all the others remained standing, the Chancellor leaned against the bed-rail, and M. de Lyon upon the edge of the chimney-piece. He who was making a report placed himself opposite the King, and if he had to write, sat down on a stool which was at the end of the table, where there was a writing-desk and paper." Histoire de France by Le P. Daniel, page 89. Quote, I will settle this matter with your Majesty's ministers, said the Portuguese ambassador one day to the young King. Quote, I have no ministers, Mr. Ambassador, replied Louis the Fourteenth. You mean to say my men of business. End quote. Long habituation to the office of king was not destined to wear out, to exhaust the youthful ardor of King Louis the Fourteenth. He had been for a long while governing when he wrote, quote, You must not imagine, my son, that affairs of state are like those obscure and thorny passages in the sciences which you will perhaps have found fatiguing, at which the mind strives to raise itself by an effort beyond itself, and which repel us quite as much by their, at any rate, apparent uselessness as by their difficulty. The function of kings consists principally in leaving good sense to act, which always acts naturally, without any trouble. All that is most necessary in this kind of work is at the same time agreeable, for it is in a word, my son, to keep an open eye over all the world, to be continually learning news from all the provinces and all nations, the secrets of all courts, the temper and the foible of all foreign princes and ministers, to be informed about an infinite number of things of which we are supposed to be ignorant, to see in our own circle that which is most carefully hidden from us, to discover the most distant views of our own courtiers and their most darkly cherished interests which come to us through contrary interests, and in fact I know not what other pleasure we would not give up for this, even if it were curiosity alone that caused us to feel it. Memoire de Louis XIV, page 428. At twenty-two years of age, no more than during the rest of his life was Louis the Fourteenth disposed to sacrifice business to pleasure, but he did not sacrifice pleasure to business. It was on a taste so natural to a young prince, for the first time free to do as he pleased, that Superintendent Fouquet counted to increase his influence and probably his power with the king. Quote, the attorney-general, for Fouquet was attorney-general in the Parliament of Paris, though a great thief, will remain master of the others, the queen-mother had said to Madame de Motteville at the time of Mazarin's death. Fouquet's hopes led him to think of nothing less than to take the minister's place. Fouquet, who was born in 1615, and had been superintendent of finance in conjunction with Servien since 1655, 
had been in sole possession of that office since the death of his colleague in 1659. He had faithfully served Cardinal Mazarin through the troubles of the Fronde. The latter had kept him in power in spite of numerous accusations of malversation and extravagance. Fouquet, however, was not certain of the cardinal's good faith. He bought Belle-Ile to secure for himself a retreat, and prepared for his personal defence a mad project which was destined subsequently to be his ruin. From the commencement of his reign, the counsels of Mazarin on his deathbed, the suggestions of Colbert, the first observations made by the king himself, irrevocably ruined Fouquet in the mind of the young monarch. Whilst the superintendent was dreaming of the ministry and his friends calling him the future, when he was preparing in his castle of Vaux-le-Vicomte an entertainment in the king's honour at a cost of forty thousand crowns, Louis the Fourteenth, in concert with Colbert, had resolved upon his ruin. The form of trial was decided upon. The king did not want to have any trouble with the Parliament, and Colbert suggested to Fouquet the idea of ridding himself of his office of attorney-general. Achille d'Arlay bought it for fourteen hundred thousand livres. A million in ready money was remitted to the king for his majesty's urgent necessities. The superintendent was buying up everybody, even the king. On the 17th of August, 1661, the whole court thronged the gardens of Vaux, designed by Le Nettre. The king, whilst admiring the pictures of Lebrun, the Fâcheux of Molière represented that day for the first time, and the gold and silver plate which encumbered the tables, felt his inward wrath redoubled. Quote, "'Ah, madame,' he said to the queen, his mother, "'shall not we make all these fellows disgorge?' He would have had the superintendent arrested in the very midst of those festivities, the very splendour of which was an accusation against him. Anne of Austria, inclined in her heart to be indulgent towards Fouquet, restrained him. Quote, "'Such a deed would scarcely be to your honour, my son,' she said. "'Everybody can see that this poor man is ruining himself to give you good cheer, and you would have him arrested in his own house.' Quote, "'I put off the execution of my design,' says Louis the Fourteenth in his memoir, which caused me incredible pain, for I saw that during that time he was practising new devices to rob me. You can imagine that at the age I then was it required my reason to make a great effort against my feelings in order to act with so much self-control. All France commended especially the secrecy with which I had for three or four months kept a resolution of that sort.' particularly as it concerned a man who had such special access to me, who had dealings with all that approached me, who received information from within and from without the kingdom, and who of himself must have been led by the voice of his own conscience to apprehend everything." Fouquet apprehended and became reassured by turns. The king, he said, had forgiven him all the disorder which the troubles of the times and the absolute will of Mazarin had possibly caused in the finances. However, he was anxious when he followed Louis the Fourteenth to Nantes, the king being about to hold an assembly of the states of Brittany. Quote, Nantes, Belle-Ile, Nantes, Belle-Ile, he kept repeating. On arriving, Fouquet was ill and trembled as if he had the ague. He did not present himself to the king. On the 5th of September, in the evening, the king himself wrote to the queen-mother, My dear mother, I wrote you word this morning about the execution of the orders I had given to have the superintendent arrested. You know that I have had this matter for a long while on my mind, but it was impossible to act sooner, because I wanted him, first of all, to have thirty thousand crowns paid in for the marine, and because, moreover, it was necessary to see to various matters which could not be done in a day, and you cannot imagine the difficulty I had in merely finding means of speaking in private to D'Artagnan. I felt the greatest impatience in the world to get it over, there being nothing else to detain me in this district." 
At last, this morning, the superintendent having come to work with me as usual, I talked to him first of one matter, and then of another, and made a show of searching for papers, until, out of the window of my closet, I saw D'Artagnan in the castle-yard, and then I dismissed the superintendent, who, after chatting a little while at the bottom of the staircase with La Feuillade, disappeared during the time he was paying his respects to M. Letellier, so that poor D'Artagnan thought he had missed him, and sent me word by Maupertuis that he suspected that somebody had given him warning to look to his safety. But he caught him again in the place where the great church stands, and arrested him for me about midday. They put the superintendent into one of my carriages, followed by my musketeers, to escort him to the castle of Angers, whilst his wife, by my orders, is off to Limoges. I have told those gentlemen who are here with me that I would have no more superintendents, but myself take the work of finance, in conjunction with faithful persons who will do nothing without me knowing that this is the true way to place myself in affluence and relieve my people. During the little attention I have as yet given thereto, I observed some important matters which I did not at all understand. You will have no difficulty in believing that there have been many people placed in a great fix, but I am very glad for them to see that I am not such a dupe as they supposed, and that the best plan is to hold to me." Three years were to roll by before the end of Fouquet's trial. In vain had one of the superintendent's valets, getting the start of all the king's couriers, shown sense enough to give timely warning to his distracted friends. Fouquet's papers were seized, and very compromising they were for him as well as for a great number of court personages of both sexes. Colbert prosecuted the matter with a rigorous justice that looked very like hate. The king's self-esteem was personally involved in procuring the condemnation of a minister guilty of great extravagances and much irregularity rather than of intentional want of integrity. Public feeling was at first so greatly against the superintendent that the peasant shouted to the musketeers told off to escort him from Angers to the Bastille, quote, No fear of his escaping, we would hang him with our own hands, end quote but the length and the harshness of the proceedings, the efforts of Fouquet's family and friends, the wrath of the Parliament, out of whose hands the case had been taken in favour of carefully chosen commissioners, brought about a great change. Of the two prosecuting counsel, or conseiller rapporteur, one, M. de Saint-Hélène, was inclined towards severity, the other, Olivier d'Ormesson, a man of integrity and courage, thought of nothing but justice, and treated with contempt the hints that reached him from the court. Colbert took the trouble one day to go and call upon old M. d'Ormesson, the council's father, to complain of the delays that the son, as he said, was causing in the trial. Quote, it is very extraordinary, said the minister, that a great king, feared throughout Europe, cannot finish a case against one of his own subjects. Quote, I am sorry, answered the old gentleman, that the king is not satisfied with my son's conduct. I know that he practices what I have always taught him, to fear God, serve the king, and render justice without respect of persons. The delay in the matter does not depend upon him. He works at it night and day, without wasting a moment." Olivier d'Ormesson lost the stewardship of Soissonnes, to which he had the titular right, but he did not allow himself to be diverted from his scrupulous integrity. Nay, he grew wroth at the continual attacks of Chancellor Seguier, more of a courtier than ever in his old age, and anxious to finish the matter to the satisfaction of the court. Quote, I told many of the chamber, he writes, that I did not like to have the whip applied to me every morning, and that the Chancellor was a sort of chastiser I would not put up with. Journal de Livier d'Ormesson, page 88. Fouquet, who claimed the jurisdiction of the Parliament, had at first refused to answer the interrogatory. It was determined to conduct his case, quote, as if he were dumb, end quote. 
but his friends had him advised not to persist in his silence. The courage and presence of mind of the accused more than once embarrassed his judges. The ridiculous scheme which had been discovered behind a looking-glass in Fouquet's country-house was read. The instructions given to his friends in case of his arrest seemed to foreshadow a rebellion. Fouquet listened with his eyes bent upon the crucifix. Quote, "'You cannot be ignorant that this is a state crime,' said the Chancellor. Quote, "'I confess that it is outrageous, sir,' replied the accused, "'but it is not a state crime. I entreat these gentlemen,' turning to the judges, "'to kindly allow me to explain what a state crime is.' it is when you hold a chief office when you are in the secrets of your prince and when all at once you range yourself on the side of his enemies enlist all your family in the same interest cause the passes to be given up by your son-in-law and the gates to be opened to a foreign army so as to introduce it into the heart of the kingdom that gentlemen is what is called a state crime the chancellor could not protest nobody had forgotten his conduct during the fronde m d'ormesson summed up for banishment and confiscation of all the property of the accused it was all that the friends of fouquet could hope for m de saint helene summed up for the beheadal the only proper punishment for him would be rope and gallows exclaimed m poussard the most violent of the whole court against the accused but in consideration of the offices he has held and the distinguished relatives he has i relent so far as to accept the opinion of m de saint helene what say you to this moderation writes madame de sevigne to m de pomponne like herself a faithful friend of fouquet's it is because he is colbert's uncle and was objected to that he was inclined for such handsome treatment as for me i am beside myself when i think of such infamy you must know that m colbert is in such a rage that there is apprehension of some atrocity and injustice which will drive us all to despair if it were not for that, my poor dear sir, in the position in which we now are, we might hope to see our friend, although very unfortunate, at any rate with his life safe, which is a great matter. Quote. Quote, Pray much to your God and entreat your judges, was the message sent to Mesdames Fouquet by the Queen Mother. For so far as the King is concerned, there is nothing to be expected. Quote, if he is sentenced, I shall leave him to die, proclaimed Louis the Fourteenth fouquet was not sentenced the court declared for the view of olivier d'ormesson praise god sir and thank him on the twentieth of december sixteen sixty four our poor friend is saved it was thirteen for m d'ormesson's summing up and nine for st helene's it will be a long while before i recover from my joy it is really too overwhelming i can hardly restrain it the king changes exile into imprisonment and refuses him permission to see his wife which is against all usage but take care not to abate one jot of your joy. Mine is increased thereby, and makes me see more clearly the greatness of our victory. Fouquet was taken to Pignerol, and all his family were removed from Paris. He died piously in his prison in 1680, a year before his venerable mother, Marie Maupiot, who was so deeply concerned about her son's soul at the very pinnacle of greatness that she threw herself upon her knees on hearing of his arrest, and exclaimed, quote, I thank thee, O God, I have always prayed for his salvation, and here is the way to it. Fouquet was guilty. The bitterness of his enemies and the severities of the king have failed to procure his acquittal from history any more than from his judges. End of section 44.